Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. It was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those, stand, those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father, I ask that the truth of your gospel would be seen clearly, that we would not merely hear the words, but, but you would give us spiritual understanding. Lord, that in understanding your word, we would respond in obedience. We would respond by faith. And so, Father, for those that have joined us today as invited guests, those that have, that have come here with, with questions on their own, Lord, I pray that we would find the answer in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, give faith as a gift to those that come and ask for you to work in their lives. Lord, answer our doubts, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In my first couple of years as the youth pastor here at Faith, we had a student leader who was fervent in sharing the gospel with a classmate. And these were both really bright young men who ended up at the best universities in our country after their graduation. And so their, their conversations were wide-ranging, very intellectually stimulating, uh, really the kinds of conversations that we as adults would sit in and listen and think, wow, like I, don't, I was not thinking that at 16 years old. I was not wrestling with, with some of these big questions. They, they were questions like, doesn't science disprove Christianity? Aren't all religions the same? Why are Christians such jerks? Now, it was a joy to watch one of our, our students repeatedly return the conversation to the gospel. 
with, with the questions as they came, he would keep returning it to talk about Jesus. But it was a great privilege for us as a congregation to watch a young man, a man who grew up without faith, to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And when he stood before you, professing uh, his, his faith, announcing his willingness to follow after Christ, affirming the membership vows, he was baptized here in the faith sanctuary. And as he was preparing for that process, I asked him, I said, I said, do you feel like you had all of your questions answered? Do you feel like we, when you went through and you asked all of those questions, that you found satisfying answers to those questions? And he said, well, no. Honestly, I don't, I mean, some of the answers make sense to me now. Some of them, though, are, are questions I, I still struggle with. But, but I realized what I needed more than just intellectual answers. I needed Jesus. I needed to put my trust in Jesus. It was a young man saying, in the midst of my doubts, I found not a bunch of answers. I found the answer. I found a Savior who gave his life for me. And so he's a Savior who, even though, even though I can't intellectually, as a, as a young Christian, answer all these questions, I know he can. So I can trust him. I've seen his goodness and his love. And so you may have answers. I don't expect that, that in 12 weeks, all that you needed was for Kevin to give you the answers. That's not what the sermon series was designed to do. We, we clearly only touched the surface of the kinds of questions that, that you ask, the kind of questions that we culturally ask. And really, every time that you answer one set of questions, you realize there are several others lurking there in the shadows. Or every time you engage in a gospel conversation, you, as a believer, share the gospel with somebody else, and then they ask you a tough question, you realize, oh, I never even thought of that. And so, so the solution for us can't just be to, to keep trying to... to check off the, the answer key. No, the solution must be that we, we come and we put our trust in Jesus. But I, but I fear that some of you, you, you still have a lot of questions, but I fear that you're, you're perhaps not really looking for answers. You see, because there is in some sense safety in our doubts. We can sort of say, well, there are just so many questions. You could never answer them all. Therefore, I don't have to make a decision. I have, I have so many things that I'm wondering about, you know, that, that I just don't think I could. You, we, we can feel comfortable in our agnosticism, our lack of knowledge, and we think it's safe to be here. Because sometimes we use questions to keep God at arm's length. And so what I want to challenge you to do is, is be willing to, to listen. Listen and see if there is an answer. Because with so many questions, who could possibly believe? And that's where turning to a, a chapter like Luke chapter 7 can be so helpful. And that's why we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning, to feel the weight of the, the whole chapter, to see the variety of people to whom the gospel is announced and how they respond, to see that Jesus offers himself to the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, and the response that's demanded is a response of faith, of trust, of belief. Because at the beginning of this chapter, we're introduced to the centurion. He is a commander in the Roman army, but, but he's introduced to us in a surprising way because in verse 4, 
the people come to Jesus pleading for Jesus to heal the man's servant. Why? Verse 4, this man deserves to have you do this. Jesus, if you're looking for an opportunity to help someone, put him at the top of the list. He deserves to have your help. Why? Verse 5, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. They come to Jesus with a request. This man is worthy to have you respond, Jesus. But, but notice how the man describes himself. As Jesus approaches, he stops Jesus. In verse in verse 6, we find that, that, that the man sees Jesus not far now from the house, but he sends out friends to, to stop Jesus. With this message, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. The people have said this man is worthy of God's grace, but he says, I am unworthy. I do not deserve God's grace. Now, you, you hear, if you've heard that word grace before, to say you are worthy of grace means you don't understand it at all. Because if grace is a free gift given to us by God, then if it's something we are worthy of, it's no longer a gift. It's an obligation. It's wages. It's a payment that we deserve. But see, the man himself understands the distinction. And so as Jesus comes near, he says, I don't even, I am I, not even worthy to have you come into my house. And yet I know what kind of authority you have Jesus. Now, this encounter is surprising to us. Surprising because this man is, is an enemy of the people of God on one hand. He is a commanding officer in the imperial Roman army, by definition, an enemy of God's people. Now, in the previous chapter, now, and again, I just threw us here into the middle of Luke's gospel, so I don't expect you to have, to have remembered this detail from, from chapter 6. But back in chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus was teaching his followers, and he said this, what does it mean to love one another? He says in verse 27 of chapter 6, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Is he serious? Is Jesus serious? That's what love looks like to an, toward an enemy? Yes, he's serious. Turn the page to chapter 7. Who's the first person we meet? An enemy of God's people a centurion, and yet the people, they, they can justify it in their own heads. Because, well, you know, of all the Romans that have come through, I mean, he's a good one. He loves us. He, he cares for us. He protects us. Look, we have evidence. You can see it on the deed to the, the synagogue. His name, he paid for it all. And so Jesus heals the servant. Jesus responds to the faith of the centurion and then uses this enemy of God's people as an example of what true faith looks like. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard this, when he heard the man's faith, when he understood that the man recognized Jesus' authority, Jesus was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, Jesus said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. An enemy of God comes and finds grace from Jesus. And from the rich and powerful, we then are immediately confronted with a, with a woman that on the human scale has nothing in common with this man. From a rich and powerful ruler 
who can build a synagogue, we go to a woman who is weak and vulnerable. Luke has, has put these stories in juxtaposition so that we see the contrast. Look at verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And then listen to the horror of verse 12. I mean, feel the sadness of this scene. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Jesus, as he nears this town, finds himself confronting a funeral procession. Likely here at the end of a day, in, in, in the custom, probably the day of this young man's death, being taken out for burial. And Jesus does the wonderfully polite thing of interrupting a funeral procession, walks over to the woman, and in verse 13 says, don't cry. Okay, that breaks all kinds of social etiquette. It's nonsense to walk up and say that to somebody in the middle of a funeral unless you're about to perform a miracle. Because otherwise, those are words of cruelty. This woman has lost her only son. And then we get the added detail that she's a widow. She has no protection culturally, spiritually, religiously, financially. She is vulnerable in this situation. And yet, yet Jesus didn't say it with any sarcasm because verse 13 gives us the context. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. But then it gets weirder because his next conversation is with a corpse, with a dead body. This is even more inappropriate for a funeral. But he touches the coffin, he makes the procession stop, and then he speaks to the dead man. Young man, I say to you, Get up. And then listen to the miracle of verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus intervenes in the life of this poor and vulnerable woman. He brings radical healing, bringing the dead back to life. There's no posturing, there's no incantations, there's no prostrating himself like the prophets of, of the Old Testament would have had to do, even the greatest of the prophets. And so the people recognize this. They, in verse 16, praise God, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Jesus helps the powerful, he helps the weak. Who can believe? A centurion a mourning mother. But then Luke continues in this passage by continuing the just juxtaposition. He turns us now to John the Baptist. John, who was born miraculously, conceived miraculously, because he was the last of the great prophets, the one sent to announce the arrival of the Messiah, the one with the Christmas message, the King is coming. And then we find at the end of the chapter, a sinful woman. And so listen as I continue to read. I'm going to begin at verse 18 
and read a portion of the chapter, and then we'll jump to verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus announces gospel hope to John. And now jump with me to verse 36 of chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me this kiss. Give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The gospel comes to the rich and powerful. The gospel comes to the weak and vulnerable. The gospel comes to those who are worthy, who are doing the work of God. The gospel comes to those who are broken and ask for forgiveness. Because think of the continuing contrast that, John, that, that, that Luke sets for us here in his gospel. We turn from the centurion and the, the mourning mother to John the Baptist. The greatest of the prophets God was to send. The one given the task of announcing the arrival of Jesus, and yet he asked the question, is it really true? Jesus 
Are you the one whom God promised? Has God really come to help his people? And Jesus answers him. John the Baptist, who comes with a question, he answers him, yes. Look at the evidence that's here. The lame walk, the dead are raised. Good news is preached to everyone. And think of who John is. If we were to line up people based on their worth, based on how good they are, based on the task that God had given them, John goes right to the front of the line. I don't mean somewhere near the front of the line. I mean, literally, he is first, the first person in line. Look at what Jesus says in verse 28. This was one of the verses that I, that I jumped over. But Jesus, in verse 28, tells us about the greatness of John. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Of everyone who has ever lived, John is the greatest. And yet when he comes with a question, what does he find? A gentle and merciful answer. Are you the one that God has promised? Has God really come to help his people? Because John, even though he's at the front of the line, knows that to be at the front of the line of sinners makes you a sinner. Somebody who needs God's mercy, who needs God's help. And Jesus acknowledges that the, the people will misunderstand his care for those that are sinners. And so Luke contrasts the, the, the righteousness, John at the front of the line with this woman, this sinful woman. Jesus receives an invitation from a Pharisee, from a religious leader, whom we find out very quickly thinks himself near the front of the line. Thinks himself a pretty good guy. A guy who's doing Jesus a favor by providing a meal. A guy who judges Jesus while Jesus sits there. Because there's a woman who has come in likely to this courtyard who's entered into this public venue, brought herself into the, into the scene, but again, interrupting the scene with tears. And she throws herself down at Jesus' feet. And everyone at the table knows who she is. They know what she's done. Her reputation precedes her everywhere she goes. But as her tears wet Jesus' feet, she takes her hair and wipes them. She pours out this perfume on Jesus. And all the Pharisee can think, don't you know what kind of woman she is? Jesus, don't you know what she is? A, a, a good man would never let a woman like that near him. That's what Simon is thinking. Don't you know where those lips have been? Don't you know where she has laid down her head? Don't you know what she is? But Jesus, knowing her th his thoughts and knowing who this woman is, confronts Simon in his own sin. The story is simple enough to understand. One who has had a great debt forgiven sees what has been given to them, sees the gift that has been given, and responds in love. And so he turns in verse 44 to confront Simon. Do you see this woman? See, Simon thinks Jesus hasn't seen her, hasn't noticed what she really is. But what Jesus is saying, don't you see 
She's a sinner who is asking for forgiveness. Simon, something you are unwilling to do. You wouldn't welcome me, but she welcomed me. You didn't kiss me, but she has not stopped kissing my feet. You would not pour oil on me, but she has poured out perfume on me. And then Jesus speaks not only about her, but look at verse 48. He turns toward her. Like he turned toward the crying mother, he turns toward this sinful woman and says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Who can believe? John the Baptist. Who can believe in Jesus? This woman. See, Jesus is the one who has the power to heal at a distance. He has that kind of authority. Jesus is the one who can speak to a dead man and he must obey. Jesus is the one sent by God. Jesus is the one who has the power to forgive sins because the people recognize it right away. That's blasphemy to offer such forgiveness unless you are God himself. So you know, if you still have questions, if they're honest questions, then keep asking. Keep looking for answers. But perhaps maybe you've just, you've just piled up a heap of questions to keep you away from the truth. Who can believe this? An enemy of God's people is called to faith. A woman whose life has been broken is called to faith. A, dis, a disciple, a follower of, of God, the, the great prophet, is called to faith. A sinful woman is called to faith. See, perhaps the answers you're looking for, the philosophical or theological questions that you've asked, perhaps you're, you're hiding behind questions. Jesus himself stands before us. See, the Gospel of Luke answers that question, who can believe? You can. You can believe. This Gospel is for you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what people say about you, you can turn and find forgiveness in Jesus. This Gospel assures us of that truth. Turn with me to the end of the Gospel, to Luke chapter 23. Because Jesus came not only to speak words of forgiveness, but to offer real, genuine, lasting forgiveness by giving his life in the place of sinners. And the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was crucified with condemned criminals. But as we turn to Luke chapter 23, we find Jesus still on the cross, responding to people who come to him by faith. In Luke 23, verse 38, we're with Jesus there. On the day of crucifixion, he's been nailed to the cross, and we read in verse 38, there was a written notice above Jesus which read, this is the king of the Jews. And we continue in Luke 23 at verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me 
in paradise. See, Luke wants to nail home this point that everyone who turns to Jesus by faith finds forgiveness. This man, nailed to Jesus on the cross, is condemned. He's admitting he deserves to be killed for his crimes. They are the worst imaginable things that you could think of. And he's admitting to that. He's not a man who can go build a synagogue to repay his debts. He's not a man who can go share this message with others. He's a man who within hours will be dead. He cannot get down from the cross and heap up more good works. And yet he has the audacity to turn to Jesus in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and offers him forgiveness. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Everyone who comes to Jesus will be forgiven. And yet not all will come. For there are two criminals crucified with Christ. One who mocked him and one who believed. And so Luke's gospel wants wants us to see who will we be? How will we respond to Jesus? Will we turn to Jesus? All who come to Jesus will be saved. Who can believe? What about you? Will you believe in Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, I ask that in the power of your word, you would press this truth deep into our lives. Lord, for those who came in today with, with, with more questions than they could count, Lord, I pray that they would now find an answer in Jesus. That they would find him to be the Savior. Lord, let us find our hope in him. Lord, for those of us who follow after Christ, let this message be an encouragement to us, a reminder of the great privilege we have of answering questions for our friends and neighbors of raising the the hope of the gospel in conversation, of pointing them to Jesus. For thankfully, you are the God who saves. You are the God who rescues. You sent Jesus to die in our place, and he is now the king who reigns forever. And so, Father in heaven, we come to put our trust in him. We come praying in his name. Amen.